0: Hi everyone and welcome back and thanks for joining us here at CBE Denver's podcast, Mutuality Minded. My name is Liz Patton. And
1: I'm Abby Hopkins and we're your podcast hosts. I'm about to finish my Master of Divinity
0: with a focus on cultural engagement this year. And I've just completed my Master of Divinity degree and specialized in chaplaincy. And we are both passionate about the gospel and the equipping of men and women to become all that God has intended for them to be. And we're so excited to continue bringing you more stimulating conversations around the topic of biblical mutuality. And as always, we at CBE Denver seek to advance the gospel by equipping Christians to use their God given talents in leadership and service, regardless of their gender, class, or ethnicity. This podcast is another way to discuss the biblical basis for equality through the inerrant word of God and to encourage one another to develop leadership skills and spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. In this episode, we will be engaging in a conversation about mutuality, specifically with the power of story as it pertains to mutuality. And joining us is Chaplain Eva Bleeker. Chaplain Eva currently serves as Associated Faculty and Teaching Fellow in the Counseling Division at Denver Seminary, teaching pastoral care and counseling courses while also working with the Chaplaincy Program at Denver Seminary as a Certified Educator Candidate for Clinical Pastoral Education. She has recently completed her doctoral program at Baylor University. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And we are so happy to have her wealth of wisdom and insight as a woman in academia who has served in a multitude of ministry contexts. Hi, Chaplain Eva. Hi. I'm happy to be with both of you today. (laughs) Yeah, we're so grateful and thrilled that you're here with us. And let's just go ahead and dive in, shall we? I hear that you have been connected with um, CBE throughout your education, and we would just love to hear more about that.
2: Well, I'm happy to tell you about it. I (laughs) I. I wanted to just uh, call out a word that you used in your introduction, Liz, and that's the word inerrant as a way that we describe the scripture. So when I arrived at as a seminarian, that word inerrant was so precious to me, and it remains precious to me. Something that was true for me is I had a view of what inerrancy meant for gender and leadership and ministry that was very oriented to limitations and boundaries for women with relation to any kind of leadership in the church or christian context so when i as i was making my way through my seminary experience i felt more oriented to boundaries me as a woman than to exploring my gifts or enjoying freedom in Jesus. So I arrived in a class called the role of women in ministry. It was a truly seminar style class, we were surveying a multiplicity of views. And to return to where I began, it was jarring to me, it was a scary thing. For me to learn that there was a spectrum of opinion from people who believed that the Word of God is inerrant in relation to what women were allowed to do in the Mm -hmm. church. It was a really, mm, I can't overemphasize how disorienting it was for me to learn that there were people, scholars, people deeply involved with reading the original languages, passionate about understanding the Bible in context, who came to quite different conclusions about what women would be allowed to do in my time and place, who also saw the text as inerrant. There was a narrative active in my subculture, in my church life, that people who thought that women could participate meaningfully alongside men as pastors or church leaders could not possibly also have a high view of scripture, that it would not be possible to look at the text, honor it, desire to obey it, to believe that granting authority to the Bible in your life is. A loving thing from God, that that excluded the possibility of mutual leadership. So when I got into this class, and we started reading these opinions, these expositions, these edited commentaries, that showed that people who believe the text is inerrant, could have a lot of different opinions, um, was exciting and scary. And that's where I first encountered scholarship that came from CBE. Wow. So I, I didn't know that there were other kinds of opinions represented. So that's where I, where I first found out that CBE was doing this incredible work with, with people who have a high view of scripture. And um, so that's, that's where I encountered it for the first time. Wow, that is incredible. Thank you so much for being willing to share that with us. <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah, I just wanted to thank you because I think that speaks to the experience of so many women who go into theological education. I mean, end sentence, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I think
2: so, too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So you talked a little bit about this
1: first exposure. Mm -hmm. What since then has it been like educationally, [3] professionally, personally in your own journey with discovering
2: mutuality and working through those things? That's such a great question, Abby. Thanks for asking it. I think um, you're going to discover that I can't answer a question without telling a story, so I'll tell you another <laughs> love <it>. story. I um, <laughs> love stories. So also while I was in my seminary education, which lasted four years, um, I had these opportunities to study the text supported by the academic community. And one of the most significant things that happened— as I was studying, was I I uh, felt invited by the Holy Spirit to drill down in a place that might not be everyone's favorite passage for quiet time, and that is the genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, you're laughing, but I it changed my life so significantly. And so, so I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a before and after of what it meant for me to be involved with with that part of the text. So um, you may know that the Methan genealogy is super structured. It's got all of these number things going on and generational things going on. And unlike the genealogy that's in the Gospel of Luke, there are the names of five women in the Methan genealogy. And that's unusual because we don't need them there to establish the line that Matthew is leading us toward in relation to the history of Jesus' family, right? So in my past, I had been taught explicitly that the names of those five women, who are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, although there she is referred to as Uriah's wife, not by accident, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, that those five women's, their their names were included there because they represent some kind of moral failure or sexual deviance i don't know what we do with mary there since she had not ever had a sexual encounter before <laughs> being married to joseph later on but that that it was proof that women are inherently disqualified that they bear In their makeup in their personhood some kind of weakness or proclivity to fail that is not true of men Mm. and that they were being these women were being called out on that basis so I had been taught this in settings where the view of Scripture is high and authoritative and I had internalized that view Mm. as part of my self understanding. So I don't remember actually exactly how I got interested in this list of names. But as I dug into these five stories, these five personal narratives of the women in the line in the genealogy, whose DNA is recorded in the physical body of Jesus I discovered a much more mm, freeing mm. way and a much more interesting point prob- probably being made by Matthew for including them so uh, what's the point of Matthew what I- what what work is he trying to do with his story of Jesus he's starting with speaking to the the Jewish faithful, and challenging them that the promises of God, the work of God is going to be open and available to people who do not belong to the physical Jewish line, right? And so where does Matthew end? What does it end with? Great, comm- Great Commission, yeah. And what's part? What's implicit? That's right.
0: <laughs> what's <laughs>
2: implicit in the Great Commission is get outside the boundaries right. of our family line. So I think maybe part of what Matthew is doing in the genealogy is preparing his readership for where he's going to leave them, because what is true of the four women besides Mary is that they're Gentiles. Mm. So, that's a fun Bible study for another day. (laughs) The reason I'm bringing it into this story is it was cataclysmic for me to imagine that the reason for including, for naming these women, for calling their stories to mind for a Jewish readership, was not to point out their problematic choices but to demonstrate that God has always been open to the outsider and that the specific criterion for entering fellowship with God has been belief and not blood. Hmm. So, oh my goodness. Um, So, Abby, I'm trying to get back to this question that you asked me so that that's an example of what happened during my education that Mm -hmm. that even by approaching the text with a high view I found these major shifts in how I was reading and the conclusions that they led me to about myself as a woman and about what God might be up to in my story if what Matthew is doing by mentioning these women, is that different from my previous understanding? How different might my understanding of self be if I'm open to a different kind of scriptural narrative? Mm. So that's, that's one of the things that was uh, really important in my journey. Do you want to get me back between the fence, Rose, Abbey, and ask me
1: <laughs> your no, question I again? I, I think that that is... A lot of people's journey is uh, hearing these stories or passages that have been taught their whole lives Mm -hmm. and seeing it reframed. And I think you said it's exciting and scary at the same time. I know I've experienced that, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners Mm -hmm. have as well. Um, So what, after some of that study, what has it been like for you as you've started to live into your calling and Mm -hmm. see yourself in this new light as a daughter of God.
2: Yeah. What has it been like? I think there's a couple of things that are really important for me to say. For sure, I have felt free to use my gifts in a different way. And there has also been grief for me in what relationships have changed Mm -hmm. and things that I have had to leave behind that were precious to me, um, people's opinion of me changed. And that's really hard. So um, one one of the things that might be important to say here is that the thing that has changed for me the most tangibly, freedom is an important word. But I think a, a, a more important way to frame my experience is how I f- where I see the role of the love of God in my life. So the way that this reshaped understanding of self came to me, it felt and continues to feel like the Holy Spirit has been moving my theological and emotional furniture around. The furniture is not that different, right? Mm. But it's in such a different place in priority. And as some of these questions about self, gender, mutuality, relationship, leadership, have been able to move toward the outside, it's made room for me in the center of my life with God for the love of God. Mm -hmm. And that has been uh, important for all kinds of things about my personal development. But one thing that might also be important to say here is that having the love of God in the center of my interpretation of those passages and in my expression of self in academia, in pastoral care, etc. It, it also leaves the, the door wide open for me to relate in love to and with people who hold a completely different view of gender and mutuality than I do. So in instead of um, erecting boundaries, which might, in expression, look or feel like resentment, or something worse, or more poisonous than that. Uh, it's, it's really mm, important to me. That's a really lame description, y'all. <laughs> it's central for me to continue to relate in love to people who think I am off track, um, and to intentionally keep that love in the center of how I relate to believers who no matter what they think, no matter how they interpret our passages that relate to gender.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I love the analogy
0: of the, the furniture shifting. I think that's really beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. I also, I feel like with everything you've shared, your love of narrative is coming through in every illustration that you've provided, every story. I would just love to
2: hear more about where your love and passion for narrative came from. Hmm it comes from my dad. So um, when I was growing up, so my dad is with the Lord now, and he was my pastor, when I was growing up. So story was a reward. And my best memories of my dad are about are related to story. So for example, when it was time to go to bed, it was time for stories. And so he, he might tuck me in and read me something, and that was good, but what was better was getting to hear a story from his childhood, mm-hmm. growing up on a farm in North Dakota and being one of five kids, and frankly, in a, in a pretty disadvantaged uh, situation. But that idea that story connects us to our past and helps us imagine our future, and it gives coherence to our present. My theoretical understanding of story goes, goes back to how I came to understand myself through the stories of my family, stories of immigrating to the United States, stories of being connected to the land in a way that might be closer than a lot of Americans feel when Jesus starts telling a story about planting seeds, or cutting down a tree. These things were very normal, sort of quotidian in my family because of this farming background and relating to the seasons of the year and relating to animals and knowing their sounds and their smells and what it's like to be crazy dependent on the weather. These kinds of things were were part of the stories of my childhood, and they felt so connected to... The agrarian uh, culture that Jesus was telling stories in, so, so that's that's a big part of where my love of story c- comes from, Liz. And then, um, what I've found as uh, someone who is learned to understand herself as an academic and a teacher is that whether we know it or not we are always making decisions according to the story that we tell ourselves the way that we understand ourselves narratively so um i'll try not to geek out on you too bad here but um please do oh okay (laughs) Um, so for for those of us who are in ministry who are training for ministry wherever we are. Uh, Even those of us in the room, you know, we're kind of in different places in where we're jumping into our story of being pastors and and leaders in the church. Um, There's a framework that has become really helpful to me called narrative identity theory. This is what I studied in my doctoral work. And it, it states with a lot more words and a lot more smarts uh, something like we are living according to a story and the components of that story include the reconstructed past. So we're never thinking of the past exactly as it was, but we we have this reconstruction of our past. We have this imagined future. We're telling ourselves a story about the future and that those two things come together and determine quite a bit of how we experience the present. So this is extraordinarily important in a setting like seminary education. We're going through all these adaptations. We're considering new identities. We're trying new skills. Some of them feel like a fit. Some of them we're definitely never going to try again. <laughs> so um, so this this way that story is active in our own lives is really important, for ministry and what we're telling ourselves about gender and mutuality during our training is critical. And then the other thing that's really important that I get to mention here is that when when we are involved in ministry a skill set again that we are using all the time whether we've polished it and considered it really carefully, or whether we've never thought formally about it at all, is that the what we do in ministry is receive a story from another person, and then we act on that story based on how we have received it and processed it within ourselves, whether we're moving toward some form of advocacy, we're going to you know, recon, reconnoiter resources for this person, we're going to try to integrate the person or the family into our community in some way, or we're going to give a message that this is not the place for you. All of that is happening through these narratival ways of interacting with the other. So in, So in ministry, story determines who we think we are and what we think we're doing, and then that transfers in a direct way to who we think we're helping, and the choices we make in the uh, delivery of that help. So, so those are that is a super super mm, thirty thousand foot view of what I think how narrative connects to what we're doing in the training for ministry, and then what we do with it when we get out of there so Liz where do you where do you want me to drive well
0: right now I'm actually just reflecting as someone who went through the chaplaincy program and got to um, be mentored by you in a sense I Mm -hmm. getting to see how your love of narrative came through even in your ability to train up chaplains Mm -hmm. I see so many times whenever um, I was going through the program learning to rewrite my story feeling the power to Not power, the freedom to be able to look at a story I'd already written and to do a rewrite, Mm -hmm. you know, because all of the ways the things we tell ourselves affect the stories that then we impart on others and the ways that we care for them. Mm -hmm. So I just I think you did such an incredible job just now of weaving in your own story into your love of story. And so I just (laughs) want to thank you for that.
2: I think you did the same thing, Ms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Uh In practice.
1: <laughs> You've been mentored by her. Well. Yeah, I've been <laughs> mentored by the greats, so... <laughs>
0: And actually right now, um, I have written down the name of your dissertation and I would love to try to read it in one take. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the topic of your dissertation was Chaplains and Narrative Identity, a Convergent Mixed Method Study of Clinical Pastoral Education Interns. Um, So is there anything else that you would want to add about how getting to study in Mm. this academically and now getting to practice it as it pertains to this program that you contribute and run, um, how those things all come together for you?
2: Yeah, let me see if I can tie it together. So, Liz, <laughs> um, you used the word power, and then you backed away from it a little bit, and I want to put it right back in the middle. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the thing about narrative is that it does have extraordinary power. Mm. And to uh, borrow a phrase from a Nigerian novelist that I admire so much, her name is Chimimanda Ngozi Adichie. She, she talks about the danger of a single story and how much power is inherent when we frame another person with one storyline available to that person. Or when we do that to ourselves. that that's a danger. So what you just described, Liz, was the power that you felt to look at a way that you had written about your ministry and then change it. So you moved away from the danger of a single narrative for yourself, for the way that you were rendering care, which you did with extraordinary skill, and open up lots of stories Open up lots of narratives. We can do this a different way next time. I could try something else with this person. I could approach myself with a different kind of grace or a different kind of reliance on Jesus when I'm doing something really hard. I can be free to fail. All of these are just tiny examples of ways that we can move away from the constraint of a single story the power and danger of a single story and open the power and freedom of lots of different narratives that we can embody as learners and as chaplains and pastors and people who are following Jesus according to the way that Jesus made us. So where that settles down for me in the framework of mutuality in ministry goes back to where I started. So... So the way that I grew up was with a single narrative for what it meant to be a woman who grants inerrancy to the Word of God and wants to be obedient with her life. And what scriptural narrative has done for me is open lots of stories that are all equally faithful to Christ
0: that is so well said yeah thank you so much just for your willingness to i mean just so eloquently describe i think the experience so many um people and i say specifically women going through theological education have had to learn to reframe and to do so without guilt and do so without shame Mm -hmm. and to be able to do so I walked away from the term powerfully, but I'll re-embrace it now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but, yeah, I just I think what you are speaking to is something that is extremely powerful. And thank you. Mm. Thank
2: you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I think, as Liz is expressing, a lot of people have had this experience, myself included. For people who are listening, who are maybe discovering mutuality for the first time, mm. or if a woman is hearing this who's like, realizing there are different options, what advice would you have for this power of story and rewriting and not limiting oneself to a single story? What What advice would you have for people who are listening who might be in that boat?
2: That is also a great question, Abby. And I'm going to answer this from my own experience and also from a theoretical perspective. So one of, one of the ways that a single story about gender retains power is when we isolate within that story. And so my experience of moving out toward other narratives was through other people. And that is also supported from the, from the literature. <laughs> so, so for me, uh, what that looks like is my husband affirming a pastoral calling in me, Hmm. and empowering me and encouraging me. And then brothers and sisters within my worshiping community, within my academic community. And I just, um, there is one person who deserves to be named as I am telling this story. And that's a friend who is like a brother to me, his name is John Keever, And he was my pastor at the time that I was going through this exciting and debilitating crisis about how am I going to live into my calling, if I might be free to do it differently than I imagined. So um, John, my my senior pastor at the time, invited me into dialogue, he affirmed my pastoral calling, he commissioned me for chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. So to have the voices of women and men in my life, multiple generations, multiple vocations, saying, we, we agree with you that you should be exploring your expression of self as you obey Jesus. That experience of community was really important. And... Um, The theoretical literature would say also that having an attuned listener who can hold that space that is even terrifying is the way to, um, it's the way out of the fear. So, what I would say to someone who's listening to our voices is, Thank you for listening to our voices. And also, if you are identifying with this sense of disorientation, there's a fear of being disobedient. If you live your strength for Jesus, an important step is, is, is uh, connecting with a dialogue partner who can listen to you in a way that makes you feel safe. I love that
0: mm-hmm. yeah thank you I'm also um, before we run out of time I'm also just wanting to ask a bit about you and your personal story as it pertains to your career right now ah. you have just finished um, your doctoral program and you are a full-fledged woman in academia mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just would love to hear more about in your time and place right now if you see any unique opportunities or challenges in the space that you hold right now as a woman in Christian
2: academia? Mm. Thanks for asking that, Liz. I mean, there's lots of challenges, but I think if I have one minute to comment on it, there's so many things I would want to celebrate. So Denver Seminary has been a place for me where I can be a learner, a teacher, a colleague, a sister without gender stress. I have felt very free there. I'm super thankful for that. And so the opportunities that open up in a space where that's true is that um, I can embody and model collegiality. So I can partner with my brothers who have similar academic interests as I have, and we can create new scholarship together or we can co-teach together without there uh, needing to be a a boundary between us that uh, is concerned about hierarchy or boundaries or limitations, those kinds of things. So that modeling of collegiality is really important for me. When I look at the two of you and you have both truly been my students, it's so exciting for me to think that Liz and Abby uh, get to learn in a place where brothers and sisters in Christ are truly acting like siblings. And um, that influence is really precious to me. I don't take it lightly, but um, I, I would just say, I could never have done what the two of you are doing when I was at the stage of education that you're in. And so it's just really encouraging for me to see, to see what you're doing with your lives, and it makes me proud of you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I just want to
1: jump in and say, I took your uh, pastoral care and counseling class in my first year of seminary, and had the opportunity to write on the story of Hagar, and that for me was so transformative. I think I had come in. Um, with a lot of questions and just being able to explore that with you. Mm -hmm. I just remember some of the conversations that we had. Me too. (laughs) And it's just so beautiful to see that, you know, even though you said you wouldn't have been able to be where we're at, your influence on us and Mm -hmm. other women in the program is so vast and you're allowing that to happen for us. So I just wanna say thank you for that.
2: Thanks for saying so, Abby. I couldn't say it better.
1: (laughs) Is there anything else as we're wrapping up that you would want to share um, in terms of mutuality or your own journey where you're at right
2: now? Hmm. I I think a good place for me to land is to just say I feel so much hope for the present and the future, for the, the gathered community of believers in Jesus to be known as a place that is cooperative and mutual and free and focused more on jesus than on the boundaries between us Mm -hmm. and thank you again so much
0: And thank all of you for listening and for being with us today at CBE Denver's Mutuality Minded. We're so looking forward to continuing this conversation further about what mutuality looks like in our next episode. So if you want more information about CBE Denver or would like to engage in further dialogue about topics that we've discussed here, check out our website at cbedenver.com or visit our Facebook or Instagram pages for more information. And wherever you may be driving to work, hitting the gym or having normal life around your home, thank you for joining us. And remember to stay mutuality minded until next time